Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Joe Schrank, great to have you on the show today to uh, talk about your thoughts and your organization, uh, High Sobriety. I did notice on uh, your website for... Hi, Sobriety, where you are the founder and program director, that you wrote a column about uh, changing one's attitude. And even before you came on the air with me, I talked about you being here. I already got people who said, how could you possibly talk about (laughs) replacing one drug with another in in terms of uh, cannabis slash marijuana? and the opioid epidemic. I know this is a tall order out of the box, but uh, how, how can we consider it, and is it really so strange? It's not strange at all, if anyone gives it some thought. And how can we talk about it? Well, look, there there is no lethal dose of cannabis. So first and foremost, one of our goals at high sobriety is to take death off the table. There is no recovery uh, with dead bodies, right? I think we can all agree on that. Dead is dead. Um, the current paradigm of residential treatment, you know, go to rehab for 30 days and be indoctrinated into 12-step philosophy and so on and so forth, is successful 5 to 8% of the time. So my question is not how can we talk about it, how can't we talk about it? States with medicinally dispensed cannabis have 25% fewer overdose deaths than states that don't. That's without education. That's without doctors. That's without naming opiate dependence as a qualifying condition for a medical program. We could increase that number even more. The question is not, is it effective? It is for some people. This is not a solution to the opiate crisis. It is an aid. It also may be a stepping stone for some people to cessation of all drug use. Um, So, you know, we're not looking to say that we've solved this. We're looking to say that this could be a tremendous help. And really what it is is a cultural question. Why do we care if people smoke cannabis? What is it about the stuff that is so, that just doesn't sit well with a large percentage of the population? Well, I know in Pennsylvania a long time ago, it was totally legal to uh, grow cannabis, smoke cannabis, whatever. And then... I guess in post, after the end of Prohibition, it it became illegal. Uh, Do you ever do research into the the thoughts behind why certain things are legal and why certain things are frowned upon? Well, look, you're talking to a Brooklyn liberal. Mm. So um, the reason I think that they have criminalized drug use is because they don't like the people who use that particular substance. So in other words, if I didn't like English people, what, what, how could we disrupt their lives? We could make tea illegal and we could, you know, put all this crazy stuff. Tea leads to heroin and tea leads to death and you're a bad person. Good people don't drink tea, so on and so forth, which is absurd. Um, the Nixon administration really went full throttle with demonizing and criminalizing cannabis use. And the reason was, and it's even been stated by people who were there for the Nixon administration, Nixon didn't like hippies and he didn't like black people. 
and the way that he wanted to disrupt their momentum with anti-war protests, with cultural change, was that. You know, that's a big, giant roadblock. The truth is, if we look at this <clears throat> logically, um, and I'm not sure logic ever really applies to drug policy, but it could, we should be encouraging people to use cannabis as a form of intoxication if they are going to use a form of intoxication. It's safer. Um, it does not have the collateral damage that alcohol does. We're talking about the opiate crisis, which kills 60,000 people a year, roughly. We don't exactly have the numbers for 2016, but it's looking like it's going to be about that. Alcohol has killed 88,000 Americans a year for decades. So the idea that you can go to Costco and get a bottle of vodka for $20, but if you smoke a joint, you're a criminal, is ridiculous. It should be exactly the opposite because there isn't any sort of death. And, and I know people have all these anecdotal examples of their nephew that went crazy after they smoked a joint. or you know, Those are very, very few and far between, for the most part. Adults who are fully formed in a controlled environment are perfectly safe using cannabis. That's not true of alcohol. And so I think that it's much more of a cultural war that we're fighting, and we're asking people to think about drug use and drug policy in a very different way. Um, we, our drug policy in America is failed by any metric. Um, the metric that I use, you know, what has it done to families? What has it done to the prison population? You know, all those, all those kinds of things are, are shameful, but we just shouldn't, we shouldn't, consider this to be a success, and we have to look at this differently. Addiction professionals, Joe, who are in our region, don't really have anything nice to say about a full-scale uh, legalization of marijuana. Mm-hmm. They just they just don't. They believe it, um, if I'm remembering what they've said in the past properly, uh, they believe that it is um, a- another thing that becomes either a habit or an addiction, um, and I know uh-huh. that some people say there's there's marijuana is not addictive, and they've always indicated that they don't feel that anything will be solved by uh, opening the floodgates to drugs further. Mm-hmm. What say you, Joe? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Those people should read research. Those people should look to scholarly knowledge building, peer reviewed research. Um, it does change something. It changes death, for one. <laughs> like, I don't understand. How is that not improvement? I think that those types of people who, they're rooted in an evangelical belief in 12-step philosophy. That's wonderful for them, the same way that evangelical Christians tell Hindus they're going to hell um, because they don't love Jesus. That's it's not so different to tell people, well, if you're not totally abstinent, if you don't do what I did, you are on the road to hell. It's important to understand and it's important to draw the distinction between dependence and uh, addiction, right? So addiction, there is no diagnosis without impairment, and the impairment has to be determined by the individual. So in other words, people who say, well, gee, I'd like to go to law school, and I have this come up a lot where these young guys, they get off heroin using cannabis, and then they want something else in their life. And the counsel may, in fact, be, then the weed has to go too. You know, so part of it is a pacing. Um, there are lots of people who say, 
I like my life. I have a simple job. I come home and I get baked and mm-hmm. I'm stoned. Who are we to judge those people? I don't, you know, that they have failed or that their lives are wrong or that we have some sort of superior ability to correct them. Um, people have the right to self-determine. So, so people who and and look, the the people who are opposed to legalization. There's a couple of silos of those. One are the Jeff Sessions of the world, right, and the governor of Kentucky, who lords over the fattest state, the most welfare-dependent state, um, the poorest educated state, and somehow he feels the ability to judge people who use cannabis. The one thing that flourishes in Kentucky is bourbon. You know, this is the one, like, really, are we, do we want to model our lives after Kentucky? You know, I don't think so. So... Um, there's those people. Um, anybody who drinks alcohol and tries to demonize cannabis is a hypocrite. There's just no other way to describe it. Let me, uh, the, there yeah, are old... yeah, let me ask you about that, though, because I think yeah. that's, that's a fair point. In our culture, Joe, there are a lot of people who cannot really function very well at all, either because of an addiction to alcohol or a dependence. Well, let's just call it a, a just a be fair here, a dependence on cannabis. There seems to be a desire yeah. in this con- in this country to live your life in an altered state because reality is so ridiculously difficult. And a lot of people who don't smoke pot or drink look and, and shake their heads and go, guys, we got a real world out here, and a lot of you are not employable mm-hmm. because you're addled all the time. How do you address that? Acceptance. There are people who are have mental health challenges, and there are people that will fall to addiction or dependence to the point where they don't function in the world. What I think is not that we shouldn't make efforts uh, towards improving that, but that we need to apply the knowledge, values, and skills of public health policy, not criminalization. So in other words, making those people who have the inability to function in the world because of a dependence on a substance criminals doesn't really help anybody. It makes the problem worse. And so I'm not saying, look, don't do anything about it. I'm saying, um, I don't know. Are people who smoke cannabis, is it crime? I mean, whatever it is, maybe it's a bad decision. You know, Americans make a lot of bad health decisions. I'm not sure if you've ever seen people at McDonald's. Uh, It's not the best health decision. I'm almost 50. I ate a chili dog at 7-Eleven. That was a really bad health decision. Um, so I, I think it's more of a, an issue of how do we approach this in a better way for a better outcome? Um, and part of it is that there are, there will never be a drug-free America. Like that is just pure fantasy. And the idea that there are people out there who are playing into this fantasy and who think that through incarceration or, crim, um, uh, or you know, these paramilitary organizations that somehow there's going to be a drug-free America. It will never happen. And so that's got to be given over to, okay, swing and a miss for 50 years. It went nowhere. It hurt families. It hurt communities. Let's try something different. So my interest, um, and I guess ironically or not, I don't know, um, I am a substance-free individual. You know, I haven't had a drink in 20 years. I don't use cannabis. I don't consume it. Um, and that's a decision that I made and that I've stuck with. But 
that may or may not be the right decision for all people. We have to look at other options. We also have to give people time to reach that if that's what they decide is going to be their best play to address a drug issue. We spent, so, yeah, but Joe, we spent a long time in this country uh, talking about how bad smoking cigarettes is. And, and a lot uh-huh. of us never thought we'd see the day when there was a, a smoke-free bar or whatever. And you know what? Uh-huh. It happened here. And in a city like New York, they are very strident on that one indeed. And for a very, you know, kind of liberal city, it's amazing to see that they are uh, leaders in this. So uh, Bob Marley, yeah. who was a musician and smoked a lot of uh uh, marijuana, when he was being treated at Sloan in New York City, they said that they had never seen an individual so filled with cancer yet still alive as Bob Marley. Um, what do you uh-huh. think about that argument? <laughs> I mean, I'm just throwing these things out here. Well, for look, you I to... think that smoking, yeah. there is a difference. I mean, part of what the reason that smoking has declined way it has is taxation. So, yeah, you know, hang on, Joe. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We're losing you somehow. Let's see if we can make it better. All right. Sometimes the I think the black helicopters hover when we have uh, good interviews. All right. So talk about the. Uh, Am I back? Yeah, you're Part back. Of the reason that the, the rates of smoking have declined in New York City is taxation. Cigarettes are like twenty dollars or something in New York. Um, so that was one of the ways that they reduced the rates of smoking. What they didn't do was arrest people or shoot them for using nicotine. So so part of it is just a cultural trend, a general uh, trend of health messaging, you know, and it took a very long time to move the culture into that whole idea that smoking, you know, it wasn't that in the 60s or in the 50s didn't understand that smoking was bad. You know, they did, and they started to clue into that. Um, so, it, so, so it's, it's a whole thing, and one of the ways I think we can reduce the rate of use is the same Take those people down Tobacco Road. Start with the distilled spirits lobby. You people, they, they kill 80,000 people a year. Why aren't they being uh, in court? Why isn't there a warning label on alcohol? Like, this product can result in death, certainly can result in stupidity, um, fights, bitches, violence between partners. There's a million things that can go wrong, and part of the way that they've hijacked is that message, don't drink and drive. You know, as if driving is the only thing that can go wrong with alcohol use. So what I think is that it really was public health policy and public health officials that reduced the rates of smoking, not only in New York, but nationally. Um, And ironically, people like the people that you were describing who are so opposed to the legalization of cannabis, a lot of those people in AA are dying of emphysema and lung cancer. So I just I don't get the moral posturing. Um, you know, I don't think that that's appropriate. I don't think it's helpful. In places where uh, marijuana has been legalized or cannabis medicinally or uh, for recreational use, do you believe that those areas are are trending in a, a more healthy and better way? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. There's no question in my mind that people are safer. They are safer when they're using. Um, one of the things that we know in California is that people with a medical card, they report that they have either drastically reduced or eliminated their use of alcohol. So those people are safer just, just doing that. Um, we know that in states that have medicinal cannabis and recreational cannabis, there's 25% fewer overdose deaths. That means people 
people are on the front end circumventing the use of opiate medications. They are um, reducing their use of opiate medications to the point where they're not in jeopardy of death or they're eliminating them. You know, they're replacing it with cannabis. So I don't really know. I don't, I, I think it's, look, it's a cultural messaging thing to get people to think about this differently. And I think the question is, do people believe it is medicine? If they believe it's medicine, it's a safer medicine than a lot of the other things, clonopin, Xanax, uh, and all of the medications have a lethal dose. Tylenol has a lethal dose. 500 people a year die from a number of you know. Um, it's a big problem. Even when people don't die, they clog up the ER. There's a bunch of different things that would be improved. Like that does not mean that cannabis in and of itself is without risk. All right. I, I'm um, just, I'm gonna, yeah, we're, your phone connection is, is really <laughs> – it's really not good, and I'm kind of – uh, distraught about it, but we're out of time anyway. I, I think that listening to alternative perspective is important to people. And uh, Joe, as you point out, I mean, w- there are things in the past that uh, we said, nah, that'll never happen. And, and lo and behold, these things happen. Mm-hmm. So I say in the future, anything Look, we said that, getting yeah. there would never happen, and it's here. We said the HIV crisis, and P.S. Cannabis is the condom of the HIV crisis. It's the thing that's going to help us stop this locomotive and, sh- and um, sh- not the HIV crisis, the opiate crisis. It's going to help us stop this locomotive and push it back in the other direction. It's not going to be posturing. It's not going to be just say no. It's going to be harm reduction. All right, and uh, we'll we'll find out where we live because we have a, a a terrible problem here in Pennsylvania, which is one of the worst in the country. And uh, and anything that can be done to possibly look for a solution, I believe, uh, should be done. So, uh, Joe Schrank, it was great to have you on the show today to uh, talk about your thoughts and your organization, uh, High Sobriety. Your website is highsobrietytreatment.com. I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you so much. appreciate the platform. Mm-hmm. It's just a tragedy that uh, the black helicopters won't let us have a, a proper conversation without a bunch of... We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 